Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Hi, I'm sitting with Ann Lewis, the Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. Ann, always a pleasure to catch up. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thanks. I'm so happy to be here, Jason. Great to talk to you. Uh, Talk a little bit about the TTS role or what you expect at least the TTS role to play in meeting the goals of the AI memo. Sure. There's so much that's exciting in the AI memo, and uh, we're so proud to say that we're going to be a part of the National AI Talent Surge here at TTS. So we're going to be um, running special hiring processes with the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program and the United States Digital Corps to bring AI talent into government. And there's so many opportunities to work on interesting, uh, groundbreaking AI projects. So that's one place where uh, TTS is positioned to directly support the AIEO. And we also have an artificial intelligence center of excellence in TTS consulting, and uh, they have been and will continue to deepen their work around working with agencies to identify AI use cases and pilot out potential solutions. And then ideally, like, work iteratively to bring in -in best-in-class technology to solve the right problems at the right times. In in general, GSA is really excited that the AIEO is grounded in the key principles of safety and privacy. AI presents a huge opportunity, and also it comes with a lot of risks, as with all emerging technologies that are poised to completely change the technology ecosystem. So we're here at the table, and we want to work with agencies to help bring in the best and brightest and figure out how we're going to uh, change the world for the better with government tech with, uh, with artificial intelligence. You mentioned the National AI Talent Search as part of the EO. How is that going to change from the way TTS or the talent searches have done in the past around PMF and U.S. Digital Corps? Or is it just, it may not change much, but we'll just maybe have that more specific focus on hiring folks with AI skill sets. And we know AI skill sets can mean everything from data to the the technology side to the understanding, the the privacy, civil liberty side, the, the secure side. So maybe talk a little bit about what maybe that vision could look like or where, where, what comes next to kind of get that AI talent search going? The hiring processes that we're running for both programs are part of their regular hiring processes, but we are looking for folks with experience in and expertise in artificial intelligence. Since this is an emerging technology, a lot of people who do AI work started out with a data science background, so we're definitely looking for data scientists, but it's such a broad interdisciplinary field, as you point out, that we're looking for folks who cannot just do the implementation work, but can help with implementation planning and advise uh, from a policy and program and product perspective. So we're looking for a broad swath of skills of people who can help figure out how do we ethically effectively and efficiently deploy AI technologies in the right ways. And if you're interested, you can go to AI.gov and see a variety of opportunities if you are an AI professional and you're interested in doing a tour of duty uh, to serve your government. And I will definitely link to AI.gov on federalnewsnetwork.com, make it easy to find as well, though it is a pretty easy website, AI. Yeah, yeah, uh, we got the good URL. You got the good URL for that one. (laughs) Uh, You also mentioned the AI Center of Excellence, uh, something that's been around for some time. Mm -hmm. I I, I saw uh, some folks from GSA, former folks from GSA, uh, and you mentioned use cases and pilots. Talk a little bit about that effort going on. Uh, uh, Claire Bontarano, the federal CIO, mentioned about 700 AI use cases in that AI inventory. What are you all doing currently to support not just not, not all 700, of course, but sure. some of those use cases? <laughs> I was going to read them all to you in alphabetical order. Please, okay. from, from the top. <laughs> 
Yeah, so the Centers of Excellence try to provide AI, subject matter experts, and strategic tools and infrastructure support, kind of like a triad of support here, to work with agencies to discover use cases. And so we're going to build upon this program and scale it up. And there are so many examples of finding the right use cases and finding the right AI tools that are already helping agencies that we're, we're hoping to build upon. But one of my favorite examples is USDA's using computer vision tools for beef grading. So the AI Center of Excellence team created a successful AI machine learning model for USDA by conducting exploratory data analysis, prepping images from expertly graded subject matter experts, and then training a multi-class image classifier to correctly predict the various grading classes, like prime, choice, select, standard, etc. And there are so many use cases, big and small, that are like this. And in some cases, so artificial intelligence is a 15-year-old field. It's now just reached a level of maturity that we can consider broad adoption across the federal government. But there are lots of tools like that that are already available. And it's just a matter of understanding how to marry up these newly powerful, scaled-up tools with the use cases that have to do with taking vast swaths of data and making decisions about them and helping agencies figure out how do you test this, how do you prototype, how do you iteratively adopt these tools, and how do you make sure they're actually working? You know, you can't just adopt a tool and say, this is probably fine and trust it forever. You have to bring governance to tool adoption for emerging technologies at all levels. I'm so glad you brought that up because one of the things that the COE has been known for over the last year, you know, five, seven years, is teaching and then moving on. So they would, you know, early parts of the centers of excellence would go into an agency and learn agencies about cloud. How does cloud work? And then once you, once they taught, they kind of get out. Is that still the same goals with AI? Meaning we're going to help agencies understand the power of AI, where the opportunities are, how to deal with governance, all those pieces and parts you just described. Is that still where the COE goes, or are they more project and, and program based? Meaning we'll go in help on a specific six-month project, year-long project, and then move somewhere else. Those two categories of engagement have kind of merged. You can teach by doing in a lot of cases, by working with an agency to build out a prototype or show here's what's possible. But ultimately, the agencies are going to be the ones who are leading in, in, the, uh, in the forefront of AI adoption. So what we can do is help people understand what's possible, and we can, we can do thought leadership and help them understand, like, how do you do capacity building around this at all? I find the upcoming AI revolution to be similar to what we saw with cloud maybe 10 or 12 years ago, where everybody gets that it's this big transformative thing, but they're not sure what the first steps are and then ultimately how to use it and where does it fit in this sort of like framework of, of government tech. And so the Centers of Excellence and TTS Consulting can sort of get in there and help agencies figure out what are the landscape of options, how to early adopt different pieces and parts of it in a safe way, and then empower agency leaders to make the right choices and, and, and build and deploy this technology going forward. Is one of the biggest challenges still getting folks to understand what AI can do and what AI is? A lot of people when I talk to will say, well, AI, that's predictive analytics. People just put a, a shiny you know code on it. Other people are still in that well, AI take my job, which I've, I laughed too recently, right? Yeah. But, but I had someone sure. tell me, no, they, they, people are still worried about that. How, sure. how much do you hear, like, where, where are we at with this? When you talk about cloud, are we still in, you know, cloud first? And then we're going to move to cloud smart, so it's AI first, AI smart. Maybe that's a bad analogy. but no, That's you, a great you, analogy. Okay. I mean, I think it'll be a major ecosystem shift like cloud, and perhaps like digitization of paper processes and forms was in the 90s. Uh, and I think it'll impact everything from collaboration tools to how decisions 
decisions are made with data. So we have a huge opportunity for making systems work better, work more efficiently, work more fairly. And we also bring, we have a huge risk of, of trusting imperfect automation to make decisions that could create or cause harm. So like the major ecosystem changes that we've seen every 10 years or so, government agencies will be all over the map on adoption. And so managing capacity building and understanding maturity models and risk frameworks that they can use to make decisions, this will be key to successful deployment, as will bringing AI talent into government. But I love the question about, is AI going to take my job? In the 50s, my parents tell me, social scientists predicted that the pro proliferation of home appliances and machines in the consumer marketplace would take all our jobs or make all of our jobs only take 10 hours a week and we would live a life of leisure at the result. Did that happen? No, I'm, 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 I'm waiting for it. Yeah, I'm waiting for it too. So this is just another world-changing major technological evolution. And the structure and shape of work will certainly change. I doubt the amount of work will change. I think you know the ways in which we do our jobs will hopefully become more efficient and effective, and then we will be able to do more as a result. I got one of those robot vacuums. Yeah. It doesn't, it, it's better, but it's not perfect. I still need to vacuum the house yeah. uh, with the regular yeah. old vacuum. Has it taken over your household? I wish. Uh, no, <laughs> it has not. And uh, uh, there's other things I want to talk to you about, but let me just tag back to the AI EO real quick. I know it's important. I know you're going to tell me it's a presidential priority. I know uh, all those important things, but... Why is now having such an executive order key to this long-term impact? Given how the EO kind of lays out certain things for, uh, as mentioned, the, uh, the talent search, mm -hmm. uh, I know there's other pieces and parts in there that really kind of focus on certain agency efforts. Why is this coming at the right time in your world? The tech industry has shown us that the AI revolution is here. So what government's trying to do is get uh, government leaders at the table and involved in defining the right ways of doing decision-making and, and building out of governance frameworks. And we have a real opportunity to do that relatively early for, for government. And so I think this administration sees how important that is, and, and they're saying, hey, everyone across government, we want you to pay attention to this. You want, we want you to understand how it works. We want to bring AI talent into government, and we want to start thinking about what are the uh, effective ways that we can build public-private partnerships here, and what are the governance structures and decision-making structures that we need to make that happen. And on that note, let's take a quick break. We come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest today is Ann Lewis, the Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Ann Lewis, the Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. So much more to talk about. I'm sure things will, as they evolve with AI, we'll have more to talk to. Let me shift over to two other big things that are happening in, in the federal tech community. Uh, one is obviously the digital services memo. This is uh, implementing uh, pieces and parts of the 21st Century Idea Act. We heard Claire Monterano talk about that. And she talked about the, the role TTS will play. Mm -hmm. Hey, here's a new memo. Go do more work, TTS folks, right? That seems to be a common refrain from your friends at OMB. What are some of the roles? What are some of the things you'll be doing to help implement the digital services efforts? This is a team sport for implementation. So Everything's a team sport, though. <laughs> We've been working very closely on... You have implementation planning, and we're really excited about our role as a key implementation partner. I mean, one of the things that's really special about TTS is that almost everything that's in our very, very broad portfolio had its origins in an administration priority of some form. So we are really excited about our you know, ability to work on this and you know, inspired by uh, Claire's leadership. 
And this is a really important framework for website modernization. It's a pretty comprehensive list of things that you should do to build a modern website or to take an existing website and do that legacy system modernization process using tech industry best practices. So I've been in the tech world for about 20 years. And tech companies themselves are all over the map on modernization depending on when a system was built and who adopted which technologies and how well they evolved over time. You know, whether or not companies actually prioritize handling your tech debt incrementally versus just, you know, waiting until something is so broken that you have to rebuild it. So I think this framework is actually very practical and handy. And I think that it's one of the most important things that TTS can do is help agencies figure out how to modernize. Everybody likes that that word, we should modernize, and then they're not sure where to start. This framework is like, okay, here are the 25 things you need to do, and here's how to get started, and here's how to know where you are in that in that spectrum of like implementation planning. When I first joined government, I was surprised to discover that looking at everyone's different, you know, analytics, web analytics portals, that more than 50% of user traffic to government websites is, comes from mobile devices. And probably less than 50% of websites have ever been tested on a mobile breakpoint. So Government has such a long road ahead of it in terms of figuring out how to use those industry best practices to meet people where they are and deliver services that are actually easy to use, that don't inadvertently create a bunch of digital barriers. And so the digital experience guidelines are just like an incredibly useful laundry list of best practices in language that um, government practitioners can understand and can readily use. So we're really excited to work on that guidance. You mentioned the mobile devices, uh, and and Claire had some really interesting statistics up there. Something like 2% of all federal forms have been updated. I tweeted that out because then it's a common one which she's talked about before. And someone asked me, is there any new data on that? I won't put you on the spot and ask you if there's new data. But I think there's definitely, is that a place where TTS has seen a lot of requests from agencies? Hey, how do we make that form more than a fillable PDF? How do we make that form better than just a printout and fillable PDF? What types of work are you starting to get from or have been getting from around digital services where agencies are seeking help? So a lot of times agencies will come to us and say, we've got this legacy system and we know that there are some issues with it, but we really need some help just sort of mapping out comprehensively all the all the service frameworks, all of the uh, user journeys. We really want to understand, like, what can we do that is most impactful to users? That's usually where we start. And so we, we usually bring a set of practices from the field of human-centered design, where if you just took a website as it has sort of, like, accumulated over time based on policy decisions, program management choices, vendor implementation choices, it's this massive thing. And if you were to inventory every single touch point between what exists in that federal program website and places where users could interact, you'll have a list that's so long you wouldn't be able to modernize everything. So you really have to prioritize and human-centered design tactics of, of saying, okay, well, who are your users? What are they trying to do? Where are the points where users are interacting? Let's take a look at those points first and then map out what us- where users start and what they're trying to do and then figure out where can we remove barriers? Where can we make things clearer and fewer steps? Where can we take steps that are asynchronous or on paper and make them synchronous? Is there a reason why a form, for example, is still on paper? Because sometimes it's just that no one has bothered to modernize it. Sometimes it's because someone wrote into law 17 years ago that it had to be this way and this is how it was interpreted by a generation of lawyers. And so you really have to start with the user in mind, figure out what they're trying to do, understand why the system is how it is now, and then do your implementation modernization planning. I'm so glad you laid it out that way because I think it's 
Claire wrote out, this is a 10-year roadmap, but we could do it in five years. People are like, oh, my goodness, it's, it's a little <laughs> overwhelming how much there is. And, and these are hard problems. As you said, there's a reason why only, again, if 2% or even if it's 10%, forms are only digitized in, in a you know, way we expect them to because it's not something you can just do easily. And there's, right. there's a lot of reasons and rationale, and there's Paperwork Reduction Act and, and all those challenges that come with it. Mm-hmm. Where do you see... TTS's biggest impact on, on through the digital services memo is are there specific callouts for you all in the memo? Yeah, there are a lot of callouts. Uh, it lifts up um, U.S. Web Design System, which is um, if you're building a website from scratch, one of the building blocks of of modern websites is a design system that outlines you know the structure of pages, the default styles, CSS, logos, etc. And so we have we have this this starting scaffold of a website. Um, and if agencies adopt this, then they start to use common um, design best practices without even realizing it. We make the path least resistance to the virtuous path. So one of the many call-outs of the digital experience framework is uh, adoption of U.S. web design system. And hardly promoting it at all, uh, because this is a useful open source tool, 25% of, of federal page views are being loaded by sites that use this. So we're, we've got deep adoption into websites that have high user traffic. And there's more to, more to, to go there. So that's one example. And just real quick, I'll jump in. Sure. I just had a really good conversation with Dana Chisnell, the director oh, of cu- customer experience <laughs> at, at DHS. And she goes, we've leaned into the 21st Century Idea Act. Mm-hmm. And she goes, one of the things we did was adopt the U.S. web design standards. So great. She, the, the, a lot of those DHS websites are already meeting those goals. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good Exciting. example of, of an agency who leaned into it and has taken advantage, but others need to kind of... Con- continue to follow suit. So uh, go ahead, other things from the digital services memo that put, that put, put, gives you something to do. It also lifts up the importance of accessibility and localization or multiple language support. So one thing that you can, with a, a website built in the last few years, you can, one thing that's usually easy to do is to introspect into it by looking at user traffic and understand what are the languages spoken as identified by browser language settings of the people who are coming to your website trying to do things. And so you can find mismatches there if you just look at your analytics data and say like, oh, well, 70% of the people who tried to view this page on mobile, for example, had their default language set in their browser to Spanish, but it's only translated into English. So you know, clearly there's, a, there's work to do there. So we, on digital.gov, we have uh, communities of practice and also just playbooks and best practices written out on how to think about and really invest in the right ways in accessibility so that people of all different abilities can get the information they need from their government website. And also how to think about taking a website that's currently just in one language and not just translating it into multiple languages, but also doing what's called localization, which is a more comprehensive approach to understanding all of the different ways in which People who speak different languages need to get information in different ways based on sometimes it's a cultural context, sometimes it's a, a, like a local context, and uh, sometimes it just has to do with like how languages and images sort of fit on the page from a design perspective. So there's a whole set of industry best practices there that agencies can choose to adopt. Got to talk FedRAMP. Yes. Uh, last time we spoke earlier this summer, you said to me... We're using some of the money from the American Rescue Plan Act, uh, the, the TTS. Well, we did that last year. We did yeah, that last yeah. year, right. So uh, some of the money was to hire more people for FedRAMP. Mm-hmm. Now we have the FedRAMP memo is out. 
how are you working with when you look at that memo? I know it's still in draft, so there's still sure, some things yeah. for it to go. But what's that memo going to mean for TTS and FedRAMP in terms of kind of continuing to evolve that process? We know about the FedRAMP board. We know about the uh, technical advisory group. So we kind of know the basics, but mm-hmm. from a TTS perspective. We will continue to focus on operational efficiency, listening to our customers, and scaling the FedRAMP program to meet their needs. And we uh, wholeheartedly encourage dialogue between our stakeholders, NOMB, through the public comment process. FedRAMP's really committed to meeting the needs of our stakeholders, and we'll have an opportunity to, for key stakeholders and audiences to answer questions and provide feedback directly with OMB. As you noted from some of the early glimpses that you've seen of the memo, like one key theme there is that FedRAMP, first and foremost, must be a security program and use agile principles and recognize that security is an ongoing risk management process. So, you know, I wholeheartedly agree with all of that. And um, it also emphasizes that FedRAMP is a bridge between industry and the federal government. And so it's on us to thoughtfully navigate situations where, you know, for example, unthinking adherence to standard agency practices in a commercial environment could lead to unexpected or undesirable security outcomes or simply increasing the cost of building towards security. So one big, you know, change that you'll see in the uh, FedRAMP draft memo is not to create incentives to create a uh, for cloud service providers to create a separate just for government cloud because if we really lean into zero trust principles we understand that just building a separate version of something doesn't make it more secure and in fact it doubles the cost on cloud service providers of maintaining all of the the security hardening aspects of their systems i'm going to jump in here because sure. that that's something that someone pointed that out to me too as as a oh my goodness type of part in the memo mm-hmm. As you were developing the memo, did you get, and again, I know OMB did the OMB memos, but I'm sure you were uh, TTS, GSA, uh, Federal CIO Council were all consulted in this to a certain extent. Is that a concern that that type of language is in there? Because a lot of these agencies, a lot of these cloud providers have already developed a GovCloud version, and now there's kind of that, well, maybe you really don't need it. I don't know if you started to hear some, some concerns from industry or even government. Or is it too early? It's probably early. And also, just speaking just from myself as a, as a technologist, um, forking your code base, forking your deployment architecture is not going to lead to, by def- you know, security. By default. By default. Or di- by design. <laughs> and it's also, yeah, I mean, the zero trust principles that government is leaning into in the last couple of years, these have been industry best practices for, for much longer than that. So, you know, I, I think that the tech industry broadly is trying to drive towards better and more coherent security principles and the principles you see in the updated FedRAM memo are a reflection of that. I think it's really a result of listening more carefully to not just agencies but CSPs and understanding or trying to think through how do we create the best kind of public-private partnership here. And you've got plenty on your plate, so uh, not to ask you to pile on. Uh, any, anything else on your plate for 2024 that you haven't mentioned? Any, any other priorities that you'd want to highlight? Sure, yeah. We're, we're still committed to and excited about um, strengthening and scaling up the login.gov program. So you might uh, have seen I from, can't forget about login. My, you may my, have heard of it, Jason. I've, I've heard, I've heard, <laughs> once or twice. Yeah, so if you, if you uh, check out recent uh, GSA blog posts, you can see some um, news there that we're excited about providing multiple options for agencies that are seeking paths to IEL2 compliance that um, involve remote biometric and also offline options like going to the post office to get your uh, identity verified. Plenty to work on. Your plate yep. is full, as, as I said. So, <laughs> Anne Lewis is the Director of the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration. And thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, Jason. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll shift gears, continue to talk to GSA, but this time about the Federal Acquisition Services Catalog Management System. 
I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. For the next two segments of the show, we're going to continue to hear from GSA, but the focus now is on the Catalog Management Program at the Federal Acquisition Service. My guest is Mike Shepard, the Director of the Catalog Management Office at the General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's great to be here, Jason. Thank you. I attended your panel discussion and enjoyed it. You guys did a really nice job. And I think the one thing that really stood out to me during that discussion was the idea of there were some really good case studies about how agencies, I think GSA was one, Air Force was the other, went down a path to fix something or improve something update something that maybe had been done before that didn't work out quite as well. In your case, it's the catalog management. And I've, for years, just going to go on the record for it in front of you and say this is, I thought they uh, should always just improve GSA Advantage instead of trying to come up with the commercial platforms initiative. I want to ask you to comment on that. But uh, let's start with uh, where are we today with the catalog? And, and We are currently in a pilot of the new FAST catalog platform, or FCP for short. This is a new web-based application that... Uh, simply will make it easier to publish to GSA Advantage. The FCP replaces the Schedule Input Program, which is a tool that we know to be a major pain point for industry partners, a long and painful history with SIP. So uh, the FCP in in its most basic form is is replacing SIP, again, with a a, a new web-based user interface. It's going to bring in some some really new key enhancements that are going to benefit both our suppliers as well as uh, our acquisition workforce and, and customers on the Advantage side. As I said, it's an intuitive web-based application. It's going to be a stark contrast right out of the gate. When you log in FCP, you will quickly realize this is very different from that desktop SIP application. But really, it's more than that. It's a capability that's going to be integrated with EMOD in such a way where we're going to be able to capture catalog information during the mod process. So what this means for our suppliers is we're going to be able to automate publishing the GSA Advantage, and we're going to speed up that time to get catalog changes down to the Advantage platform. We know that to be a long-standing pain point for our supplier community, and uh, I, uh, I'm super excited to be delivering a tool that's going to be able to mitigate that, that long-standing pain point. I can remember the excitement when GSA announced that they would automate the eMod and eOffer process. So this seems to be part of that. This is not the first time GSA tried to do this. So I want to definitely get into the enhancements and really talk about what's going to be different. But walk us through the story about how last time you tried to do this, it didn't go so well. And what did you learn from that? How long ago did you try this previously? This has been tried at least two other times, most recently with the FPT project formatted product tool. We are grateful in some respects to have that history because it really has informed some of the choices we've made out of the gate here with this new catalog effort. One big difference between the legacy FPT program and what we're doing now is I am here as the director of the catalog management program at GSA. This is no small thing. What that should signal to to all of our stakeholders is catalog management matters. Coming up with more efficient, cleaner ways to process catalog information and then improving the advantage experience on the front end for our customers, it matters enough where we're going to establish a catalog management office to do that work. And let me jump in real quick. Previously, was it other duties as assigned? Correct. FPT was a, a, a project. It's the first time, to my, to my knowledge, that we've had a dedicated cadre of folks who are dedicated to catalog. We have a singular mission, and that is to approve catalog management across FAST, across GSA. And I'm excited about uh, FCP because this is a, a big, important step in that process. 
one of the big differences you mentioned during your panel at, at ELC uh, 2023 is you really took a different perspective. Maybe previously it was technology first. This was people and process first. Walk me through the development and, and, and this started a year ago, this started three years ago. Walk me through that process to get to where you are today at the pilot, and then we'll jump into the pilot. I've been involved in Catalog now for, for over three years, so it's been a long journey to get here. Uh, and one of the conscious choices that GSA leadership made was to make sure the Catalog Management Office was not just technologists. What we have in the CMO is a mix. We have technologists, we have big brain data scientists and IT experts, but we also have a division within our program that is focused on the business problems that we're tasked to solve. So we have a business requirements division. It's actually led by the former MAS director out of Region 2 New York. And that group of folks is really a, a collection of folks who, who lived in the business, who were contracting officers, contract specialists, procurement analysts, folks who have lived the problems that we are now endeavoring to solve through the FCP and other applications. Putting that group together, how difficult was that? Was it trying to convince folks that like, okay, we need the user, we need the COs, or, or in your case, I think you've mentioned you're maybe, a, are you ever a former contracting officer? Are you retired like Marine? Yeah, I, I was are indeed. A I'm, I'm a recovering uh, CO myself. So I, I, I was a CO within the Assisted Acquisition Service as well as the MASS program. I don't know how much convincing it took. I think, I think there, there was from a fast senior leadership perspective a recognition that we have tried uh, to solve this problem in the fa- in the past, this this go around, we're really going to make human centered design and fixing problems the focus of of this effort. Rather than driving towards the next shiny technology object, we actually want to look at that user journey. What does it take for that user in terms of the number of clicks they need to take to get from point A, which is just logging into an application, all the way downstream to that point B, which is publish a catalog successfully on Advantage. What are the clicks that those users are taking? And then what are the friction points, the problems within that journey that we can mitigate through our tools? So we're in the pilot stage now. Let's talk about what that looks like. How'd you kind of figure out what those friction points are? How'd you start to mitigate them? Yep. Uh, the pilot is, is, is exactly what it sounds like. You're, you're beginning, how many people are using the pilot? How many, yep. is it contracting officers first and industry second or industry first and the contract or both the same? Yep. Give, me, give me a sense so, of the pilot. So, so to that first question, one, one of the choices we've made is to make this a true shared use application. And, and this is a, a big change, I mind you. Historically, GSA contracting officers and contract contract specialists have used their own suite of systems and followed their own set of business process flows within those systems as our uh, contracting uh, supplier community. So historically, these have been discrete applications. We've brought that together into a shared, integrated workflow. And this is a huge deal, right? This allows us to work through problem areas, challenges along the way. The kicker to this is that we've also applied that same unified look and feel for our help desk. So our VSC, our Vendor Support Center, is also able to see the same info in the same real time and step in and troubleshoot and triage as they go about. To the question about where we are with the pilot, we are currently 32 contractors into the pilot. So this is a very small number, and that was really intentional on our part. We wanted to test this application with a small group to make sure that the system worked well. So far, with that limited pilot, we have had really favorable early user testimonials and feedback. We are actively surveying these users. We are certainly learning a lot from these user, user, this user community, things that 
are working well, things that are working less well. Uh, we are seeing in the early pilot that we, out of the gate, are seeing some of those efficiencies from a cycle time perspective. So this is a known chronic pain point for our users. It just takes too darn long to make a change, add a product, delete a product, issue an EPA, issue a, a TPR, a temporary price reduction. We are seeing out of the gate that it takes substantially less time to process these actions through FCP as compared to the, the legacy, legacy work, workflow. So we're excited about that because what that means for our supplier community in terms of real benefit is they're going to have better control over how their catalogs are represented on GSA Advantage. And when they need to make a change to deliver for their customers, we have a system that enables that change. You know I'm going to ask you the follow-up. When you say significant amount of less time, do you have any data you can share? On average, 10%, 40%, 99%. I'm going to hedge a little bit on that. I'm not going to give you exact numbers, but I I will say one specific example of efficiency gained is in the delete modification space. So one of the enhancements that we are particularly proud of here in the early going with FCP is that deletions are happening almost instantaneously within a day or two of submitting a delete modification, that delete action is memorialized on the Advantage platform. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. How long did it take under Uh, the SIP, roughly? It it was greater than 10 days to to be able to process delete delete actions in in the legacy That causes big problems. Absolutely. I just bought something that was supposed to be deleted. It's no longer there. And, And frankly, we are seeing it across different types of mod actions, so ads, EPAs. We're, we're also seeing improvements there. Again, I'm going to be, I'm going to hedge a little bit in terms of the time box, but so far so good in terms of what we've seen from our well, pilot still users. still the pilot. We get it. It's only 32 contractors, so we get it. But, yep. but that, I think that's, the delete one is a great example. Yep. To delete it within a day or two yep. versus 10. Yep. I mean, Absolutely. it'd be great to do it within minutes. But, Absolutely. But it's that's, a game changer. That's, that's on the horizon. That's on yep. the horizon. We have 32 pilots right now in the contract. What's your plan do you add more pilots in six months? Do you ha- plan to expand this to from 32 to 1,000? Where, where do you see this going over the course of the next you know, six to nine months? This fiscal year, fiscal year 24, we will be continuing to onboard new users. We're going to scale, scale up about 5x, so to about 150 new users onboarding in this next tranche. From there, in January, we're going to plan to bring in more and continue to bring in a few hundred per month through the end of fiscal year 24. What that means for us in terms of our target as a program is that we're going to move the majority of Advantage catalogs into this new platform by the end of of the fiscal year so that users can benefit from these new features and so GSA can ensure that catalogs are compliant and competitive across the board. In addition to user onboarding, though, we are also pivoting into the service space. So we now today have a capability for products, but the next frontier for us is developing an analog for services. How can we make it easier for suppliers to submit labor categories and rates? So as part of this year ahead, we are targeting a limited pilot for services, uh, an MVP, much like the MVP we have for products today, by the end of the FY. Mike, on that note, let's take a quick break. We come back, we'll continue our conversation. My guest today is Mike Shepard, the Director of the Catalog Management Office in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Mike Shepard, the Director of the Catalog Management Office in GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. When you look at the multiple word schedule, 
there's no longer individual schedules, IT schedule, professional services, architecture, engineering, but there are companies that, you know, the, the biggest users are IT, for instance, or the biggest users are professional services. Are you starting with one or are you just going across the board saying, we'll do 150 people, maybe 30 IT, 30 professional services? How are you, how's that breaking down? In terms of the pilot, the 32 that are in there today all hold the OS4 SIN, the Office Supply fourth generation SIN. We started with that OS4 SIN because it is a fairly straightforward COTS product space. It offers a high number of matches for market research reports. And it, frankly, it's just a good-sized pool of contracts for a pilot, small enough to, to be manageable for us to train users, but large enough for us to get, to get feedback. For fiscal 24, we have actually asked industry to fill out a survey to express their readiness to join us here in FCP. And we have absolutely factored that into how we're going to queue up the next iterations of, of users going forward. So we issued a survey over the summertime. Mass contractors through that survey were able to tell us their preferred timeline for transition. They want to move right away. Get me out of SIP, please. Or they're not quite ready for any number of reasons. And we've absolutely factored that into how we roll this out going forward. I'm going to ask you to look even further down the road. What kind of party are you planning when you get to turn off SIP finally? <laughs> will this will it be cake? Yeah. And and, and yeah. When, when is I think it's going to be Halloween themed. We're going to put a, <laughs> a, a big gravestone out there. It's going to say RIP SIP. And it, it's had a, a long and painful existence, but it, it is officially time to put it out of its mi misery and rip SIP. If we have this conversation next year at this time, do you think SIP will be done? Or do you think it's maybe even another year after that? Because this takes sure. a while and you have... Yeah. Lots and lots of vendors, and you got to make sure it's right. And I, I mentioned services as our next frontier, and, and services vendors use SIP as well, albeit they use it for TNC files. They don't use the Advantage catalog capability. We also have other users, for example, BPA users, that we have not yet built the, the core capabilities around to be able to onboard into this new environment. So. In terms of shaping expectations, it, it is going to be mul a while. Mul multiple years before we can finally put the tombstone up mercifully and, and end SIP. But I am super confident that we are well on our way to getting there. Because I, mean, I think that's really the key. If you can retire the old system, turn it off, that's when you know you've had success. Absolutely. I think too many times the, you, you end up running, not you, GSA, but agencies, companies, you've picked, run the parallel systems much longer than anyone hopes there needs to be. Uh, let's talk a little bit about services as well, because that's another big issue. The idea here is because obviously there's no product, mm -hmm. but there is, hey, my labor category for software developer one is $100 an hour. Uh-oh, now it's $110 an hour. I have to modify that. Right. That, that's kind of what you're looking yeah, to so, make easier. Yeah. So in short, the initial services MVP will allow us to collect structured data for services. That means labor categories and rates. Once we have that structured data, it's really going to be foundational to allow us to feed Calc Plus. So for contracting officers today, if you work in GSA, you are uploading to Calc Plus through a fairly manual two-step process. Through FCP, by taking in labor categories and rates, we will be able to feed that data directly into Calc Plus as one of the use cases. There's lots of other exciting possibilities beyond that in terms of making services consumable to customers. 
potentially e-library advantage. All that stuff is, is to come in the future. This year ahead is really about let's just create that nascent capability, a first-step MVP for services. And, and then going forward, you foresee, obviously, oh, see how that works. Let's find success and continue to grow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we are fundamentally focused on making catalogs compliant and competitive across the board, across FAST's broad spectrum of offerings. But, and I think it's important to emphasize this, FCP is in a pilot. It is a toddler right now. It is in a very early stage. And I, th- I think one of the things that everyone needs to know about our group is we, are, we come at this from a place of humility where we absolutely want to hear feedback. And some of that feedback is good. Some of it's bad and constructive in, a, in, in, in the sense that it informs the backlog and ensures that what we develop next is going to be responsive to our user needs. I'm glad you brought us back around to that discussion. Obviously, when you have the initial pilot with 32 contractors, it's easy to get feedback. As you continue to grow, as you go to 180 and then 300 and then 700 and then thousands, what's your mechanism for continuing to get that feedback? Because all of a sudden, okay, everyone's in office supplies. It's, I can tell you why, why that's hard. But yep. now I'm yep. in technology supplies. Now yep. I'm in fleet and, and you know, I'm... I'm giving you other types of, of supplies that maybe aren't, aren't as easy and, yep. and my needs yep. are different than your needs. Yep. So we, we have a couple of mechanisms to ensure a continuous feedback loop. One mechanism is we have a survey that we send out after users have been in the application for, for some time. In addition to that, we have a survey link baked into the application itself. So if a user happens to hit a friction point in their journey, they can fill out a survey then and there and give us that feedback in real time. We are also very focused on meeting with users in small groups once they've been in the application for a few months, working with them to understand what's good, what's bad, where do we need to focus some energy going forward. We're going to continue to do that throughout this user transition moving into the fall. Uh, So far, at least, the survey results are positive. As I said, we're getting early success signals, but we recognize as we scale this, certainly new challenges will emerge, and we're ready for those challenges. Mike, one thing just occurs to me as we're talking through this, you mentioned the Calc tool, Calc Plus. There's been a lot of discussion about fair and reasonable pricing when it comes to GSA schedules. Why we keep coming back around to this, I'm not sure. But I think there's a big concern of TDR and the like. What are you all doing to ensure that you are getting the right compliance, you're meeting the goals, whether it's regulatory goals, legislative goals, or just you know straight-off policy goals? So one of the things that we are super excited about, because this really is going to be a game-changer for, for our supplier community, is we have baked into the FCP a compliance and pricing report. Many of our users are familiar with the 4P tool. We have made the conscious choice to bring a 4P-like capability into the FCP environment. So when a supplier goes in to submit a modification action, they are now going to see those rich market insights as part of the workflow of FCP. Suppliers are going to be able to see if flags are uh, if there are flags around TAA, around prohibited items, around ETS. They're able to see those flags. They're able to see flags as well about where they stand from a market perspective relative to commercial market pricing. All of that is intel that users are going to see even before they submit a modification. So we're going to have suppliers come to the table again with a much richer basis for their offer, able to adjust it, calibrate it, so that when they submit it, it is going to be a much cleaner work product for them to work through with their contracting staff. 
Mike, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. This is a great project. I think you should be proud of the work you've done so far. And uh, obviously, good luck going forward as you continue to uh, expand this pilot. Uh, let me thank my guest, Mike Shepard. He's the director of the Catalog Management Office at the General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service. Uh, thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate the opportunity. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. 